Welcome back to the 124th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how the Democrats are going to spin the debt ceiling to be in their favor, how the commercial real estate crisis is coming and it's not going to be pretty, and then, of course, we'll talk about Big Pharma and how they are having to pivot just a little bit in order to succeed in today's market. And we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So who is to blame for the near miss with the debt ceiling? Everybody's going to have their opinions. Everybody has their shows that they watch, which frames it a very particular way. But if you had to just say one person, one party was to blame, which I would, to be honest, I would say that both of them have a little bit of blame in some way, shape, or form. But if you're to blame it on just one, who would it be and tell me why? I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. All right, let's jump to our first story, which comes from Common Dreams. Dems unveiled Debt Ceiling Reform Act to prevent future GOP hostage-taking. So you can see where they're coming from on this one. And, of course, you know, I want to report on what the Reform Act is, but that's not exactly why I thought this article was extremely intriguing. But I'll reveal that as we get a little bit further into it because, you know, me speculating about it, is different than how they frame it here and some of the quotes that they pull out from some of the people that are sponsoring this bill. So the article is talking about the current process. Quote, contending that the recent crisis proves the current process is broken and unsustainable. House Budget Committee ranking member Brennan Doyle and Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin introduced the Debt Ceiling Reform Act. Boyle and Durbin's move comes after Biden on Saturday signed the so-called Fiscal Responsibility Act, the debt ceiling compromise he negotiated with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy just two days before the default deadline. The deal suspends the borrowing limit until 2025 after the next election cycle. Very convenient, by the way, if you... Of course, no, 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 just push it off until I won't have to deal with it. I won't have to bring it up, you know, just make it so that once I'm back in office, if this is Joe Biden, once I'm back in office, then we can, then we can deal with it. So, or I can leave it on the plate of the next guy. You know, very convenient, but I understand why Biden went that way. But let's jump back to the quote. Quote, after the next election cycle, but includes devastating concessions to the GOP. A definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over while expecting a different result. If we do not significantly change the budget process, Republicans will keep taking our economy hostage and provoking default. Boyle warned, quote, The Debt Ceiling Reform Act will end Republicans' perennial weaponization of the debt ceiling once and for all by making it harder for extremists to take the debt ceiling hostage. End quote. So you can see here what's kind of developing. And the fact that the Democrats got to this first is a very savvy political move. While I do believe that the Republicans did their job and they were at least putting something in front of the Biden administration and the Democrats could have addressed this between the time that the election had taken place and before the new members of Congress and the Senate 
came to their position in January, while they still had the House, the Senate, and President Joe Biden, I, I think this is a very good move on the Democrats' part because they kind of got caught flat-footed saying that they weren't going to negotiate, then that they were going to use the 14th Amendment, and they kind of were looking like the bad guys there for a little bit, at least from certain point of views. I mean, even some of the Democratic outlets were not covering them favorably because they wanted them to just outright say, no, no more debt limit. We are passing the, or we're using the 14th Amendment. It's out. So this is a good way for them to reframe it. They're saying, okay, hey, one, we're not going to let the Republicans take it hostage anymore. I mean, this is strong language, but because they're getting out right after this debt ceiling issue, they're putting out the Reform Act, and they're saying, okay, now we're going to change the process. We're going to make sure that the Democrats can't hold the debt ceiling hostage. And if they wanted to be more moderate, they could say, oh, we don't want anybody We don't want anybody to be able to hold the debt ceiling hostage, but they're specifically pointing out the Republicans. So now the consensus is going to be when you look back on the debt ceiling issue, you're going to remember this reporting about the newer bill, how all the Republicans were holding it hostage and how the Democrats had to pass a bill to make sure that this never happens again. Like I said, very savvy, very smart political framing on their side. And, you know, like I said, I don't agree that it was all the Republicans' fault, but you have to look at them and say, oh, okay, Democrats, you got your head screwed on right. You know how the political realities work, which is people have a short memory span. And though some issues are going to be remembered, the more you inundate them with more and more information that affirms your side and your point of view, then, hey, it's going to come out in your favor when they look back on it, when people think about it. They're like, Oh, yeah, that debt ceiling crisis, that wasn't fun. But the the Democrats, they did pass that Reform Act to make sure that the Republicans weren't messing around anymore. Just, just smart stuff on their end. So let's get to the second quote. And this is describing a little bit more of what the bill actually proposes to do. Quote, although the proposal would not fully abolish the arbitrary, you see that framing there, arbitrary and arguably unconstitutional debt limit, that is very specific framing there, and no, it is not unconstitutional, even though they would like to use the 14th Amendment, arbitrary, yeah, there's a little, little bit of truth to that, considering how many times we've just gone in and lifted it, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have something in play, but that's, that's besides the point, let's get back to the quote, my bad. Quote, as some economists, legislators, scholars, and others have called for a response to the recent GOP conduct. There's that framing again. The recent GOP conduct. Quote, Boyle and Durbin's legislation would authorize the U.S. Treasury Department to continue paying the nation's bills unless, within 30 days, both chambers of the Congress pass a veto-proof resolution of disapproval according to the Wall Street Journal, which exclusively reported on the bill's introduction. Boyle concedes that the bill's prospects in the Republican-led House are dim, but he said he is hopeful that some GOP lawmakers might be convinced that debt ceiling fights are more trouble than they are worth, particularly after a rebellion from some conservative lawmakers over the last debt ceiling deal that paralyzed the House this week, end quote. And this is also another important point here which is if the Republicans do not step up, if the Republicans do not come and say, hey, 
we are in support of reforming this. We don't want the American people to possibly get messed with in any situation that we can't pay off our debt. We want to make sure that the U.S. can keep paying its bills. And because we're arguing, we're the ones saying that we need to be fiscally responsible. We're the ones saying that, hey, we want to rein in the budget a little bit. Then you would probably be interested in this program because it says, okay, it gives us a little bit more time to actually negotiate. And also it doesn't increase spending. It doesn't arbitrarily increase the limit. It allows the limit to go on as it is, and it just stays at current spending. It's not like more spending gets passed until a new piece of legislation comes and actually lifts or changes the parameters of the debt limit. So the Democrats could say, hey, this is a smart bill. It's something that is very similar to what Kevin McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate right now, proposed back in the day around 2012. The article highlights that at one point. And it's very, very savvy on their part. I keep saying this, but it is because they're going to hold Republican liable. They're going to change the narrative, which is if these Republicans don't step up and they don't sign on to this bill, they're going to say, look, they don't actually care about financial responsibility. They don't actually care about this debt ceiling issue. They're just using it as a wedge. They're just using it as a way to get what they want and use it as leverage, which to be clear, that is not necessarily a bad thing. That is the beautiful thing about our system. You use the leverage you have in order to get things that you want. It's a give and a take. You can't just have one party getting everything they want, the other side constantly giving in or being conciliatory. You have to have them going back and forth, using their different leverages in order to work something out together. But that doesn't necessarily matter in the terms of framing because people don't necessarily see it that way. They look at the situation they're like, oh my goodness, this is a crisis. We can't have this. And then afterwards, the Republicans, after they hold held everything hostage, if you believe the point of view that they're outlining here at the beginning, and then you read this next part, yeah, if they don't sign on to this, they want to keep holding it hostage. It's a framing battle when it comes to winning elections and winning the hearts of the people. But if you're actually playing politics, you realize, oh yeah, Kevin McCarthy was just doing what he's doing. Of course, if Joe Biden was in the same situation and he did not like some of the spending programs that a Republican president put in place, yeah, he would probably sit down and try to get something out of that president if he could and he had the leverage to do so. And also if it benefited him among his base because Republicans didn't like McCarthy at first. And now they're looking at him like, okay, he can be a little bit more effective than we thought. Though he didn't get everything he wanted, he can at least be an effective political actor on the stage for Republicans. So you can see here that the Democrats are being smart about this. They are playing the long game. They're not just playing the debt game. They're not just trying to complain. They're sitting down, or at least Durbin and Boyle are sitting down and saying, hey, we can take advantage of this political moment. And especially going into 2024, that is going to be an interesting one to see how it pans out. So let's go to Durbin's comments about the entire process. Quote, after a near catastrophic default, thanks to the political games by our Republican colleagues, it is time to put the debt ceiling in the hands of the Treasury Secretary, Durbin declared Friday. For the sake of the American people and for the good of our economy, we need legislation to reform the way we address debt ceiling. The Debt Ceiling Reform Act is responsible, common sense legislation that will give the Treasury the authority to raise the debt ceiling, he continued. If Republicans are truly concerned about economic well-being of America, 
they will work with us on this sensible solution, end quote. And that's the one-two punch that I was saying at the very beginning and in that last section. We need to have a more responsible policy, and if Republicans actually care about it, they'll do this with us. And, of course, you know, this is in common dreams, so it's only going to reach a certain population. It's probably going to reach the more left-leaning people or the people like me who try to go into every different news source they can and grab a whole bunch of different opinions and really try to filter through it. It may not penetrate into the, you know, maybe the, what would you call it here, the more MAGA group who's actually reading their normal sources. They have their outlay and they don't necessarily want to go into all the other sources or they don't want to go on to a progressive website. They may go for some liberal media, but they may not go for the progressive media on the far left. So we'll see. But this message will definitely resonate with the Common Dreams audience. And if it makes it into the mainstream liberal liberal point of view, I think that they have a very interesting and important framing tool here, especially Durbin's, like I said, his little one-two punch there at the end. It's, it's a sucker punch for some Republicans who probably should have tried to introduce reform legislation a little bit quicker because they were called the enemy the entire time. They were called the villain. So it could have really helped reframe how the American people thought about the situation, saying, hey, we want this to be reform that is not just we come to the table every two years and discuss it. We're going to put a more robust system in place so we can have proper negotiations and we're not going to be, everybody's not going to be held to the fire. Then again, they may not like that. Just like the Democrats may actually end up not benefiting from this. They may look at this in hindsight like, oh, shoot, we just lost our leverage. We can't pressure a Republican president to cut certain programs that he doesn't like anymore because there's no longer a hard deadline. We'll see if it you know, backfires for Democrats. And that's maybe why Republicans didn't propose something like this, because they realized for a while they have been in the minority and they don't want to give up that leverage, at least politically, in order to get certain things that they want passed or certain restrictions put in on programs that have been passed when, you know, the other party has control of all of the chambers of the Congress and the presidency. So, like I said, very interesting point of view on this one. Let's jump to our next story, which is a little bit more doom and gloom, unfortunately. It comes from the New York Post. Work from home and empty offices leading to doom loop for NYC. And it's a study. So I did an article a while back about how the commercial real estate market is going to be tanking here soon. A lot of companies are going to purposefully default on their leases or the big companies that manage different office buildings are probably going to default on their loans on purpose so they don't have to pay the new higher rate of interest because of high inflation and they're not getting as many people that are actually buying up offices in their buildings. And now there's a study coming out of New York that verifies this even more and it's going to hit New York City really, really hard. And there are a few different factors here. So let's jump into the first part of the article that really describes how the study is outlaid. Quote, empty office buildings have set New York on a urban doom loop that will destroy the quality of life in the city and drive residents out. This is the conclusion of a team of economists from NYU Stern Business, Columbia Business School, and the National Bureau of Economic Research. 
Many employees who worked from home during the pandemic have not returned, and at least not full-time. In 2020, office occupancy fell from nearly 90% to 10%, but it's only bounced back to around 48.4 in New York City proper. In response, fewer companies are renewing their leases, which lowers the value of the building. The number of newly signed leases, meanwhile, fell from 285.4 million per feet per year before the pandemic to only 62.4 million per foot per year in the same period after. That is absolutely insane. That is more, I believe that's a 60%. Yeah, that's, no, that's even more than a 60%. Doing quick math, that's almost a 70% decrease because what, 50% would be around 140. Yeah, so you're looking at 70, 75% decrease in the amount that these companies can get for their properties or their office spaces in New York City. That is absolutely insane. You're looking at New York City, one of the largest cities with the most high-rises that has a whole bunch of different office buildings and residential buildings, too, that are meant to really facilitate trade, different organization, business growth that's allowed that allows people to come into the office and sit in one of the some of the most pristine buildings or most recognizable buildings in the United States. And now these companies cannot even get half of what they used to for these leasing agreements from their tenants. I mean, this may be a great opportunity for some small startups that want to office in New York, want to build out that network. But if all the other people who you would be networking with, the bigger companies, are leaving, is that actually going to be a good thing for you? And then remember, as these office tenants leave, and there's also probably some of the residential people that are leaving, you're losing a little bit of your tax base too. So NYC is going to have to raise taxes. Is that going to encourage more residents to stay around? Is that going to encourage more companies to keep the office spaces at these high leases? Probably not. Once their lease is up, even though they could get the office space for a lot cheaper, they're going to be paying a lot more in taxes. And they're probably going to say, hey, no, we're going to get out. We're going to go to Jersey City. We're going to go up to Connecticut. We're going to go to Boston. We're going to go somewhere else and set up an office rather than being in NYC. So this is the first half of the equation. And the rest of it does not honestly look that good for New York. So let's talk about vacancy rates. Quote, studies, the study's author highlight the vacancy rate are at a 30-year high in American cities. New York's vacancy rate is an eye-watering 22.2% in 2023's first quarter. Prices are certain to follow rents down the drain. Some properties are hit worse than others. The economists find that properties in the highest rental tier fare a lot better than those in the lower down pile. The reason for this, they say, is employers can only persuade their employees to come back to work if they, their digs are nice. If you can't afford the best of the best, it's more likely your employees would prefer to work in their spare room. The model the researchers use to figure out how much value is going to be wiped off the commercial real estate market is very clever, and it's a nice piece of work. Not only does the model look at the market rent, supply, and vacancy dynamics, but it also tries to capture the scale of work from home by studying stocks that benefited 
from changes in workplace, like Zoom and those that they hurt, like airlines, end quote. So you can see here that unless you're the cream of the crop, you're the top-end companies, you're not going to be keeping your office spaces because your employees are going to want to work from home anyway. Why would you want, and I mean, let's be clear, I think you should be working in the office for the most part. There's a certain amount of culture that is built from actually going into the office and interacting with your counterparts and really cultivating ideas and having sit-downs or even just chatting, walking away from the meeting. Someone brought that up the other day when I was listening to a podcast, and it's just walking out of a meeting with somebody saying, hey, could I spare five minutes to talk about what we just talked about? That is invaluable. I mean, I guess in theory you could call them after a Zoom meeting, but it's not the same with having that one or two-minute walk back to the house where you're shooting ideas across the aisle to each other and you know throwing things back and forth and people can also feel a lot more accessible. You know, rather than having to call them right after a meeting, if it's your boss, you can just pull them aside for two minutes while you're walking back to the desk and bring up a concern maybe. So I feel like there are little nuances and benefits to having a in-person work environment. But if you're a person who is working from home, you really like it, and then they say, oh, you have to come back to our midtown rental office that is not in the best shape, that, you know, it's a little cramped. It doesn't have the most space. Maybe people are like, no, I, you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. I'll stay home if you give me the option. So it's very interesting to see. And it's another factor leading to this cycle that is going to only go downhill from here. So let's talk about the cycle. Let's talk about the loop and how it is kind of self-perpetuating. Quote, if we assume work from home is a never-ending and permanent feature of life, the picture gets even worse. The researchers estimate this would result in a decline of office values of around 51.6% by 2029. The situation is not quite as bad for the top-tier properties, but even these are expected to fall 15.3% to around 19.7%, depending on whether work from home is forever. What does this mean for office property values overall? They get absolutely nuked. The Economist estimated the value of office stock in New York City has fallen around, hold on, hold on, take this number in, $69.6 billion by the end of 2022. Owners of commercial property can only play ostrich and bury their heads in the sand for so long. At the same time, they will have to eat those losses. New York isn't the only metropolis that will experience the disaster. The economists expect that San Francisco market to lose around $32.7 billion in value, while Charleston will lose about $5.1 billion. This would be a decline in office values of 61.6% in San Francisco and 33.7% for Charlotte, even if work from home gradually disappears, end quote. And I do like that they went with you know, West Coast, they went with San Francisco to highlight the issue, and then they went with a smaller, you know, still up-and-coming town, Charlotte, on the East Coast. But it's really meant to show that this is not just located to one city. It is happening all over the United States, and it is not going to be a nice trend. And the real stipulation they have here is if work from home lasts forever. I think a lot of companies realize, hey, we can cut costs, we can get rid of those offices, and we can have people work from home. And another point that I heard on a podcast, which is that works well for 
managers or people who have been in the company for a long time. They understand the operations. They understand how everything works. But you need that office environment for the up-and-comers, the newbies who really want to understand the company culture, who need to understand the company culture and really get ingrained in the processes. So I don't think it will last forever. I think companies will probably have a hybrid model going forward for a while, and we'll see how that pans out. If productivity goes up, then they'll keep it. If it goes down and they're not getting as much out of their employees, then companies are going to get ruthless. They're going to say, no, you're coming back to the office. Our profit margins are not benefiting from you not being here, and we will add that extra stall for the extra 100 or $200 just to make sure that the eight hours that you're here, you're on top of your stuff and you're being productive and you're not scrolling through TikTok on your other screen. So we'll see how this pans out, but it doesn't sound good for any of the major cities. And I think New York, this is one of the cycles. Just like New York had a cycle from the 80s to the 90s and then from the 90s to the 2010s, there's, you know, the dies, then there's the revivals, there's the change in leadership, change in policies. So this is just another one of those. New York is one of the greatest cities in America. It will come back. It just may be a painful downfall before it does. So we'll see how all this pans out. Keep your eyes on it. And maybe here in a few years, there'll be a few... You know, commercial buildings that if you're wealthy enough, you could buy up. Or maybe you're not wealthy enough yet, get wealthy enough, buy up some of those commercial buildings as you see the market turning around, and then really take advantage of it when that opportunity arises. This is not financial advice. It's mainly a joke, so do not take what I say as gospel. All right, let's jump to our last article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. As Washington clapped down on Big Pharma, small is beautiful again. So this is talking about a few different aspects. It's talking about the market of pharma right now, and it's also talking about a lawsuit that Merck is bringing against the United States government. So we'll start with the lawsuit because that, you know, that's a little bit more salacious, and then we'll get to how small is beautiful again, which I thought was a nice little asterisk there at the end of the sentence, and I was really intrigued when I started to read this article because of that part of the headline. Quote, Merck's lawsuit against the U.S. government is probably just the beginning of a wider industry effort to fight the law all the way to the Supreme Court. So far, though, Wall Street hasn't particularly been enthused. By the end of Tuesday, when Merck announced the legal complaint, its stock was among the worst languids of the S&P 500, dropping 2.7%. It fell another one3 on Wednesday. Barring any surprises, in less than three months, Medicare will publish a list of top-selling drugs set to face negotiation. Merck, in its lawsuit, said it expects to its diabetes drug, Javana, which had global sales of $4.5 billion last year, to be among the initial batch. It accuses the government of extortion and violating the Fifth Amendment's clause against taking private property for public use. Legal experts said Merck will face an uphill battle. Quote, Merck doesn't have a constitutional right to sell its drugs to the government at the price that it sets, wrote University of Michigan lawyer Nicholas Balgi. Quote, That's, that would be nuts, end quote. And so they're basically, they're going back and forth here because the Inflation Reduction Act made it so that the government create a list of drugs that will, on for Medicare, because, you know, that's their government-sanctioned health care program, that they will have a list that they can buy these certain products at a certain price from these drug companies. And it's, you know, it's a little bit tricky here because I think that Bagley, what he's saying is that 
Merck can't arbitrarily set the price at anything they want and force the government to pay for it. But I do think that they should have a right to set a price and make people pay for it. And just because you're a government, that doesn't necessarily change the dynamic too much because you still should be making a return on your products. Now, should it be an outrageous return? No. But you should still be making a return on your products. Otherwise, you're not going to have enough money to keep reinvesting, make new products, things of that nature. But then the question also becomes, well, did the government give them grants in order to pay for this in the first place? How much was the government involved in developing these drugs? How long have they been working together in order to build a relationship so that some of their drugs are going to be a little bit cheaper for the American people who use Medicaid? It's a very convoluted issue. And to be honest, I haven't given the Medicare, Medicaid, the American health system, I haven't given that industry and that policy position much thought because I was thinking about it as I was reading. I'm young. I, I'm in a very, I am very fortunate. I am blessed that I am not in a situation where I have to rely on Medicare, Medicaid insurance to deal with particular issues. But I realize that this is a, this is a conversation that really affects a lot of people in the United States, especially as you get older and you go to your doctor and you have to get certain drugs and maybe you don't have the proper insurance. So you go to Medicare and hoping that they have some deal worked out with these companies to get the drug a little bit cheaper. I understand that this is something that affects a large majority of the population, and it will become ever more important to me as I get older and I have to start using some of these drugs. So I'm going to try to do a deep dive after this, because when I read this, there are certain aspects I was like, yeah, I understand what's going on here. I understand the market aspect, a little bit more of the business aspect, but I'm kind of lost on the medical specifics. So, or at least when it comes to the pharma policy specifically, I'm lost. All I know is that big pharma has a lot of ad dollars that they throw around. They are one of the largest lobbyist organizations in the United States. But that doesn't mean I understand how they interact with the government when it comes to Medicare, Medicaid, and how the government funding goes directly to pharma. I understand a lot of the stuff that happens on Capitol Hill when it comes to lobbying, things like that, but not the more nuanced stuff. So I just wanted to bring this one to you saying, hey, the Merck lawsuit, it's probably not going to work out in their favor. And as the year goes on, or the article, as it goes on, it's talking about how at the end of the day, these companies are losing a lot of value on the stock market. The people have a little bit of skepticism because of this and the other that happened during COVID-19, or maybe it's just part of the decline of the medical industry back into tech stocks. The Wall Street Journal talks about how it's kind of cyclical in hard times, a little bit of crazy times for the market. Pharma does well because you know that, hey, the government's going to be buying products from pharma. They're going to be funding pharma. Pharma is essential. People are always going to need medicine. So in times when the gov the market kind of contracts a little bit and there's a little bit of fear, people jump back in to pharma. But now that things are opening up a little bit again, some tech stocks are doing a little bit better. And they've got, you know, they've gone through this period where they've laid everybody off. And now people are like, okay, we can invest back in them. The money's kind of flowing out of pharma again. And these pharma companies are like, okay, what do we have to do to innovate? So they're buying up small biotech firms. And that's what they mean when small is beautiful. Because these small companies are a lot more agile. They don't necessarily need direct funding or have to work with the FDA as closely in some cases because they're just researching and developing these techniques and they haven't gotten to the point where they have to put them into FDA approval. 
And now with the resources of these bigger companies, they're still small and agile, but they can get through this next step of getting everything approved a lot faster. So that's why you're seeing a lot of pharma companies buying up small biotech firms. And that's why you're seeing biotech firms getting a little bit of a boost in the market. Because, hey, it's a tech firm that is also a pharma firm. So it benefits from when tech firms go up and it benefits a little bit when pharma firms go up as well. So we'll see how all of that pans out. We'll see if this lawsuit from Merck goes anywhere. But the consensus seems to be, no, they're, they're not getting anything out of this. But who knows? Merck may have a really good case. They may take it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court's like, you know what, Merck? We, re- we really like you. And we want you to be able to set your drug at $1,000 per person. But, you know, it's the government. So it's just taxpayer money. Yeah, of course. You can do what you want, which I don't think will happen. But we'll see. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from USA Today. A dog jumped over a shelter wall to see be with her best friend. They got adopted together. So sometimes you just cannot go a minute without seeing your friend. Quote, we moved them to the adoption floor. We were able to find two kennels next to each other, she said. Quote, within minutes, Brenda was like, there's my girl, and jumped over. Weissenbrough said in the short clip, Brenda, the brown pit pit bull, jumps onto the wall and uses her paws to pull herself over and leap down into her friend's kennel, end quote. And, you know, the magic trick was extremely, was even really confusing for the kennel staff. Quote, Weissenborn and other co-workers were walking through the building handing out treats when they approached Linda's kennel to find both Brenda and Linda waiting for some snacks. They initially thought someone had accidentally put the dogs together. They checked the security footage, and that's when they saw what really went down. Brenda just missed her girl, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article, or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip where I'm posting Twitter tirades, and they seem to be going up pretty regularly on Tuesday and Thursday. And you can also find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Podvine. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.